there's never ever been a better chance to innovate than in a major crisis. And we're gonna to have to rethink government, rethink social interactions, rethink work practices. That should be taking place in parallel with the crisis. Hello, welcome to On The Edge, a podcast about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name is Roland Harwood, and in each episode, we talk with someone who's making sense of our increasingly connected world. In this episode, we're really delighted to have a chance to speak with Dave Snowden, who's founder and chief scientific officer of Cognitive Edge, and also creator of the Kinevin decision-making framework, which he created when he worked for IBM. Kinevin is a Welsh word for habitat and is spelt C-Y-N-E-F-I-N. If you're not already familiar with the framework, I would encourage you to search for it online or take a look at some of the links included in the episode description before or after listening to this podcast. It was a really fascinating conversation about how complexity relates to the current, former and future crises and how we can best navigate our way out of confusion using complexity science. This then led to a fascinating exploration about the need for innovation right now to make the most of the opportunities that present themselves to redesign and reinvent our world for the better. Finally, we talked about a range of methods and projects he's involved with, including one with the UN called SenseMaker, with an open invitation for anybody to get involved. So I started out by asking him what the Kinevin framework is and what are the main decision-making domains it describes. Enjoy! The Kinevin framework has evolved over about 20 odd years. The first significant publications were in the 1990s around knowledge management. But fundamentally, it defines five principal domains and then some liberal subdomains. So I'll run through those. Its basis is in natural science. So in natural science, there are three fundamental types of system ordered systems, complex systems, and chaotic systems. Now, there's no full agreement on the terms here. So I'll define mine. An ordered system is one which is highly constrained. So there's very little degree of freedom. There's high degrees of predictability. There's a linear relationship between cause and effect. And Kinevin divides that into two, the clear domain, where the relationship between cause and effect is clear, used to be called obvious and simple in earlier versions. And therefore, we can apply best practice. We know exactly what we should do. The example I normally give is... In the UK, we drive on the left. In Germany, they drive on the right. It's a simple classification thing. There is a right way to do things. The other type, which is complicated, means that although it may be obvious to an expert what to do, it isn't necessarily clear or obvious to the decision maker. So you have to commission analysis or expert review before you make a decision. So whereas in the clear domain, it's sense, categorize, respond. Here it's sense, analyze, respond. And we focus on good practice, not best practice. Yeah, there are probably variations on the way you do things, which if you've got the right expertise and training, you can use. So what's the difference between sense, analyze, respond, and the, the previous one? Sense, categorize, respond. Sense, yeah. categorize, respond is really fast. It's best practice. I'm, I'm in the UK. What type mm-hmm. of countries in the UK? Oh, they drive on the left, right, I'll drive on the left. No ambiguity. Sense analyze respond is kind of like we don't quite know. We've got to commission research. We've got to bring in a panel of experts. 
I mean, if you look at the current COVID crisis, there are things that experts know that politicians don't know. So yeah. they have to engage and they can't just instantly make a decision. So that, that's the big difference. And that, to be honest, is an epistemological or a perceptual difference. It's not a difference. The system itself underneath is the same. There is a right answer. It can be discovered. If you over-constrain a system, then you tend to get, and Kinevinus is described as a catastrophic um, failure. So we had that problem with the expense system at IBM. It was so ridiculously formal and bureaucratic that people just found workarounds. And you see the same with government procurement. So, you know, I've, I've seen this a hundred times. You get invited to a workshop, you then all describe what you do, and then the tender is written for the people the government procurement people want to buy from in the first place. And that's a workaround. And the trouble with those is because you're trying to treat something which is inherently complex as ordered, that you get a catastrophic failure in the system when the exceptions constantly build up and you end up with a huge amount of energy being wasted. So a chaotic system is one with no effective constraints. Um, so if you fall into that accidentally, you need to act decisively. Um, you haven't got time to analyze or to probe or to apply best practice. You've got to act very quickly. So the model there is act, sense, respond. Do something quickly, see what happens, respond accordingly. So a chaos state, if it's entered accidentally, is undesirable. I'll come back to desirable uses of chaos in a minute. We then um, have the third type of system, the complex adaptive system. And this is something we've only known about for a few decades, really. It's a system where everything is connected with everything else. And there are lots and lots of different constraints. But whereas the constraints in an ordered system are governing constraints, they control what happens. In a complex system, they're enabling constraints. So they're bottom-up definitions of interaction, which smooth energy flows. The trouble is there are so many constraints, and some of them are what we call dark constraints, i.e. we can see the impact of something, but we can't see where it's coming from, that prediction is impossible, and there is no linear relationship between cause and effect. Mm -hmm. So a complex system is not causal, it's dispositional. That means I can measure where it is and what the plausibility are as how it will change, but I can never make a rigid prediction, and most human systems are complex. So is that you can make statistical predictions? Yeah, it's more we use fitness landscapes. So a dispositional state says, you know, you've got the classic probable, possible, plausible. In a complex space, you're dealing with plausibilities, not possibilities or probabilities. So what we do there is we map the current state of the system. And when we map two things which are critical, one is what Kaufman called the adjacent possible, Stuart Kaufman. So that's patterns of behavior or patterns of change which are desirable, which are adjacent to where we are, because it's easier to shift into those. Um, the other thing we look for are outliers. Now, this comes from famous experiments with radiologists in which they're given a batch of x-rays and asked to look for anomalies. And on the final x-ray, there's a picture of a gorilla, which is 48 times the size of a cancer nodule. And on average, 83% of radiologists don't notice the gorilla, even though their eyes physically scan it. And the 17% who do come to believe they were wrong when they talk with the 83% who didn't. So a critical thing when we map a complex system is to find the outliers. So we want where we are, what are the spaces we can move into, and where are the outliers where people may be seeing things that we're not paying attention to. So if Bill Gates walks into a room, the, the average net worth of everyone in that room sort of increases by a hundredfold because of, you know, Bill Gates's net worth is an outlier. It's, it's more people seeing the world differently. 
the way we map that is we map it through narrative maps, a type of distributed ethnography, which is quant, not okay. qual, and that's key. So, for example, if I present an infographic, we're about to do this next week on um, two issues. One is post-pandemic recovery, and the other is ethical attitudes to triage, which is a serious issue at the moment. Yeah, mm. People have you know, been chosen to die, in effect. So what we do there is we present a series of infographics to say a thousand people on a sample. They all interpret that sample and from that we draw the maps. And so we find people who are seeing things in different ways from other people and we find what the consensus is and what the, what the possible shifts are. So that, that's kind of like one of the key techniques in complexity. The other one is experimental probes. So this is key for decision makers. I mean, every decision maker faces this kind of like one of the definitions of complexity is you have multiple competing hypotheses about what you should do. All of them are evidence-based and you can't resolve them within the time frame for the decision. So instead of trying to resolve it, you give a small amount of resource to each hypothesis and you run parallel, that's key, not sequential, safe to fail experiments and see how the dispositional state changes. And then finally, and one of the most neglected is the central domain, which is called confused, used to be called disorder, that's the domain where you don't know which type of system you're in and that's where you normally start there are kind of like six exits from that and you need to go through them in sequence so one is throw together some experts who violently disagree with each other and see what you can make sense of if that results in a consensus you've shifted it to complicated if you've been neglecting experts who you should have listened to, you pull them in, apologize, and you shift it to complicated. If you've got competing hypotheses, you shift it into complex and you do the multiple safe to fail experiments. If you're not sure what to do, and this is where we get into liminality, so there are two major liminal domains within Kinevin. One is the complex to complicated transition, and that's where you move from parallel probes to single experimental streams. But the critical one is the complex entering chaos domain. And that's what we do when we present the same data to a thousand people, but we don't allow them to talk with each other. A kind of like wisdom of crowds type approach. The parallel probes are the kind of parallel experiments that you talked yeah. about earlier, where you want to give safe to fail resources to understand uh, which is the better way to go. Whereas the wisdom of crowds, that applies in which domain? That's where you're shifting, effectively you're shifting into the liminal domain between complex and chaotic. So what you're doing is you're disconnecting people so nobody is connected or linked to anybody else. Now, if you look at the classic cases on this, the one I like is a US submarine which grounded off the coast of Portugal. Nobody knew where it was, so they gave partial data to different groups of experts, didn't allow them to communicate with each other. They all estimated the position of the submarine. None of them were right but a probability distribution on all of the estimates was within 600 meters of the submarine. Yeah, so I've heard lots of uh, sort of similar uh, examples of that wisdom of crowds, and I do like it. But so you're saying that only applies in certain circumstances and, and not others? It's one of the techniques. So, so we use it a lot. And generally, if people are in doubt, we'd say start there. For example, you present the situation to all of your employees. You ask them to do a situational assessment and a micro scenario. Um, they interpret that, and we've developed a whole set of techniques for that which can't be gained and which activate what Cardamon called thinking slow, not thinking fast. Force people to think about things, not just do a superficial reaction. 
Yeah. And then from that, we can draw what look like contour maps, which says, you know, these people see it like this, these people see it like this, there's these three outliers, and that's the way that we actually use it. But that's a liminal technique because you're disconnecting people so they can't talk with each other. Where do you think we are now? So I know you're doing a ton of stuff around COVID, and I'm keen to hear a bit more about that in a moment. But which were the predominant domains in our economy and society a couple Disorder. of months ago? And where would you say we are now? Uh, we moved into disorder. How recently would you say that occurred? Probably about four weeks ago. Okay, people so weren't taking it seriously until then. So hang on, before we talk about that, so where, where would you say we were before that? I think we were complacent. People were ignoring the problem. You know, they then discovered the problem was bigger than they thought, so they were plunged into disorder. The British government were using the wrong experts. They weren't using epidemiologists. They were using a particular class of behavioural scientists. And they only started to pull the epidemiologists in later. That's an example of conflicting expert bases and deciding who's right. And now there's a body of work which is in the complicated space. It's epidemiologists doing what they do well. The stuff which is in the complex domain is human attitudes. So let me give you two illustrations of why that's problematic. Remember, if you over-constrain a system, it will break. So a sensible thing about British policy at the moment is you're allowed to go out for exercise provided you stay in your own area and you don't go near people. So there's a sense, sense of relief there. Other countries have said you can't go out except to shop and you must get tax approval first. Now those systems will start to break catastrophically because they're over-constrained. Another example is the inappropriate use of existing processes. So all countries are trying to use their existing social care processes, as a result of which, for example, the American unemployment system got a million claims within four or five days and it just can't cope. So one of the things you also need to do is to abandon existing processes designed for lower volume and put in temporary processes which actually meet the problem and prevent the build-up of civil disobedience. Uh, we're actually writing a booklet on this with the European Commission at the moment, which is going to be published next week on how you manage in a crisis, and that contains these moves out of disorder. So are you therefore saying that the British response is kind of finding the right balance between... Um these constraints uh, compared with other countries? the need for a degree of permeability in the constraint. And of course, you know, that may have to be tightened further. But to my mind, it's a sensible constraint. I can go out on my bike and ride 50 kilometers. That keeps me sane. But I mustn't go near people. If I had to get a text message, but, you know, I live in the country. I don't live in the city. You know, this is one of the key complexity measures. Context is different. And the trouble is regulation tends to be based on cities, not the country. You've also got the, and one of the things the British government hasn't done well is they've allowed people to move to second homes. Now, that is actually what happened in the medieval plagues. Rich people from London left for the country estates and carried the plague with them. So there's some basic lessons learned there. No, no country is going to come well out of this. So where do we go from here, Dave? So we're in this disordered state right now. What do you think, best case scenario, uh, which domain should we be heading towards and how do we get there? In any situation, you're working in all domains. So there are things that we should just be doing because they should be self-evident. There are things that experts should make the call on. And then there are complex and near chaotic systems where we need to build human sensor networks. So, for example, we're just launching something next week, which is for leaders to keep learning journals throughout the crisis. We're going to do the mass sense with extended networks on 
ethical attitudes to triage and post-pandemic recovery and then move on to other subjects later. Why is that critical now? I can see why that will be critical in the future to learn lessons from the current crisis, but, but why is it critical in, the, in this crisis? if you learn lessons after the effect, you get what's called retrospective coherence. So the way people remember things, even a day after they've done them, is different from the way they remember them at the time. And if you look at royal commissions and royal inquiries, they use hindsight to create cause and effect relationships. And they solve the last problem, but they don't create resilience for the future problem. Um, Let me give you the example, right? If you look at the congressional report on 9-11, and basically it says, why didn't we join up the dots? So with the benefit of hindsight, we've looked at what happened in the build-up to 9-11, and we can see the significance of people being trained to take off and fly but not land. But everybody forgets about the nature of dots. So if I have four dots, there are six linkages between the dots. There are 64 possible patterns that can form from the dots and the linkages. Now, if I go to 10 dots, there are actually over 3.6 trillion patterns which can form. Yeah, with 12 dots, there's over 4.8 quadrillion. So with the benefit of hindsight, you can see what was significant. But hindsight isn't the same as foresight. So I think I know this as a geometric progression that you, the number of pairs increases geometrically. Yeah. I think it's n times n minus one over two from memory. You got it. And yeah, if you want a popular story on that, it's the emperor's chess. It's the emperor's um, grains of rice on a chessboard. Yeah, yeah, grains of rice on a chessboard. So the trouble is, when we look at things backwards, we see causal patterns where there weren't any at the time. So it's critical to capture two things. Lessons learned, what's actually going on, so you can use that later. Not how do people remember it, but how is it learned in the time. The other is innovation. There's never, ever been a better chance to innovate than in a major crisis. And we're going to have to rethink government, rethink social interactions, rethink work practices. That should be taking place in parallel with the crisis. Just by act of taking these journals, I wonder whether that forces leaders into a slow, rational analysis of what's going on rather than a kind of fast, intuitive version of going on. So there's benefits in the, in the moment of taking that journal as well as post hoc. Yeah, and um, particularly when you have naive observers keeping the journal for you. That, that's okay. called the pantoptican effect. So one thing we're looking at with surgeons is for first year medical students to capture the learning from them as they go. Whenever there's a recession or you know a crisis, investment in the future, investment in innovation is often the first thing to go. So how? It's also the type of innovation you do, and I think people get this wrong. They see innovation as novelty. If you look at it in nature, there's a biological process called acceptation. So it's just a neologism, so adaptation and acceptation. So a dinosaur's feathers adapt over time for sexual display. We know that. We can see it in the fossil record. They were very colorful. And one class of dinosaurs developed skin flaps on their forelimbs to better display. And those dinosaurs fell off cliffs and they glided. That's how we get flight. So you couldn't get feathers for flight in a linear way, because if dinosaurs jumped off cliffs in the hope of evolving feathers, it wouldn't happen. Hmm. So a trait which evolves for one function under stress accepts for something completely different. Uh, the other biological example is the cerebellum, which developed to do fine grain manipulation of muscles in your fingers, but accepts in humans to manage grammar in human language. So is innovation always inadvertent? Is it possible to... It's, it's sometimes called serendipity. So in 1945, a Raytheon engineer maintaining the magneto of a radar machine notices the significance of a chocolate bar melting in his pocket. We get microwave ovens. 
Thalidomide was developed for pain relief and it produced two side effects. One was disastrous, which was deformed children. The other was the first ever cure for leprosy. You know, the whole of the pharmaceutical industry is based on this. So what you focus on in a crisis is rapid repurposing of existing capability for novel purposes. And human beings are very good at this. And actually, it's the reason why we think art is so critical to humans, because art allows you to shift into a level of abstraction, which means you see novel and unusual connections. Say a bit more about that. How can we use art? What art does is it takes you up a level of abstraction. So it's, I mean, I get some of my best ideas, you know, at the opera because your brain moves into a different place. What art does is it moves you away from the concrete into the abstract and therefore you make connections you wouldn't make if you were in the concrete. And, you know, take it on a pragmatic level. I mean, I've, I've repurposed God knows what to open beer bottles in hotel bars late at night when there hasn't been a proper opener. We're really very good at improvisation. So we call it managed serendipity or exact. I mean, the, the, the book that we're producing with the EU says you go through four stages. Uh, you assess, you adjust, you accept, you transcend. I think I understand the first three. Can you talk to me about transcendence? Transcend is where you, move, you use the crisis to create something completely new out of it rather than just going back to the way you did it before. And that's the real opportunity for society at the moment. If you don't do it, it's going to be disastrous because we can't go back to where we were before. But at some level, you know, we're trying to get enough ventilators and enough testing happening in the mo- you know, in the next. That's the complicated weeks. stuff. And that's good. All right. Well, but what you've got to do then is rethink, for example, social credit. Yeah, the whole minimum wage thing, social credit, all of those sort of things now come to the fore. But they're never the top priority in, in the moment, are they? That's what complexity teaches us. You start those experiments in the crisis because the novelty will allow you to understand what will work and what will be sustainable afterwards. Complexity gives us a radical new way of managing crises. So do you think this is a blip, albeit a huge one, that we will navigate to a new normal where things will settle down? Or is this kind of complex, complicated, complex adaptive systems, are they just the new normal and this is just... You go through phase shifts, but they can go bad as well. I mean, major change comes in phase shifts with massive energy loss or energy gain in the shift. But if you look in the medieval plague kills, I think, what was it, 40, 50 percent of the population and destroys feudalism. This plague looks like it might kill with a bit less than 10 percent, but it's going to kill a lot of people and it's going to so damage the economy. We're going to have to rethink what sort of society we want at the end of it. I mean, technically, all Western governments are likely to be bankrupt within two to three months. Right. So the issue about money, the concept of gifting, the sort of hyper communitization of, of society. All of those sort of things are things that government should be allocating people to look at now during the crisis rather than wait for it to be over. I can sort of hear a um, excitement isn't the right appropriate word, but I can hear, well, I can hear the opportunity just in the tone of your voice. It's more than that. I think actually if if, if I was going to get fatalistic and I'm not, all right, but you could almost call this an act of God because it's not going to kill everybody, whereas global warming could. The next pandemic could kill 60, 70% of the population and could lie dormant for six weeks, not two weeks. So this is a chance to get it right. And we've got to take it. What about climate change? Because that's obviously, there's lots of positive benefits of the current crisis in terms of climate in the short term, but that comes from shutting down huge parts of our global economy. No contrails in the sky above Wiltshire at the moment. Yeah, and you know, clean canals in Venice and, and all of that stuff, good air quality in London for the first time in decades. And I think that's the sort of thing you start to look at. So how does the economy restart? People have got used to working at home. Downside, domestic violence is going up. 
that's the sort of re-examination. And I think it is, all right, because, and I worry about this. I mean, we're in very severe lockdown where I am because my wife has got poor health. If she gets infected, we've got a real issue. Yeah, and we're both 66 now, so we're on beyond one sort of, you know, triage decision. But if you look beyond that, you can say, actually, it takes a catastrophe for human beings to change. We don't change otherwise. Yeah, it sees the day, carpe diem. Can you tell me a bit more about some of the stuff that you're doing and some of the stuff that you know people might be able to get involved with and if they feel moved which i think many many others do to seize the day as you say but not sure exactly how to go about that do you have ideas <laughs> suggestions projects that could be so helpful we're publishing a booklet on this next week with the eu policy lab so that's joint between my Kenevin center and the eu policy lab and it's based on the Kenevin framework fantastic from your with website that, go a whole series of tools. The leadership journaling, we're now looking to prototype that next week. That may scale very quickly. Um, we had 3,000 people interested and 1,300 people on a major webinar on complexity yesterday. The complexity is day has come in that sense. We're gonna use that group plus other groups to start to do the mass citizen engagement in the dispositional mapping. We're putting systems out for families at the moment, which not only capture family stories, but allow them to capture stories of health workers when they come home at night, because those sort of cathartic stories which have to be told actually contain key learning. We're building a bereavement narrative database based on work we've done before because people can't go to funerals and their bereavement is key. If you don't get that right, people get quite sick. With the Welsh Audit Office, we're creating a system for auditors worldwide to actually do forensic capture of lessons learned and future possibilities now because they're all sitting at home with nothing to do. So we're giving them things to do. So there's a whole range of these. And we've actually got a website which people can look at where they're going up, yeah, which is the SenseMaker COVID-19 website. Okay, I'll make sure to, we include the links to that in the in the show notes. I, I know you said at the beginning of this call, uh, before we started recording, that you're kind of working 18-hour days. How can we help you? It sounds like you're, you're doing lots of amazing things, but you can't do it on your own. What the the things we're putting out is take them up and use them, because what we're also doing is building an evidence base for the big agencies like the UN, because a lot of these programs need to be worldwide programs. And I'll give you the real illustration of this. And my deep frustration is one of the things I designed a decade ago now was the ability to use school children at the age of 16 or in sports clubs as ethnographers to their own community. Um, and we proved the method in Wales, in Malmo, in Singapore, in Colombia, in Pakistan, in Libya. So we proved that children gathering stories from adults and from themselves was hugely effective in matching, mapping attitudes and beliefs and also created a sensor network that you could ask questions of huge populations in real time. And I tried to get funding to make that a worldwide project. And one of my arguments for it is if we get a pandemic, we need a human sensor network. And people are now contacting me because they remember those conversations. And it's kind of like, you know, the horse has bolted and they're trying to shut the stable door. But again, we need to seize that opportunity. And for me, the big opportunity now is to engage citizens in a radically new way through the voice of young people rather than the voice of politicians. And that's my big project. That links to the climate change debate and Greta Thunberg yeah. and all of that stuff as that's well, which is very inspiring. But the, the responses have been largely national in scale and that kind of global leadership 
you could argue, is missing. Many people are arguing that. What does that mean for globalization and the world that we live in, which is so interconnected and, you know, pandemics don't respect national boundaries? They don't. And I think it creates a new role for the UN. We, we need to move away from summits issuing orders to changing dispositional state. This is a big problem on climate change. I argue this strongly at UNEP in Nairobi, and nobody disagrees with me that things like Kyoto were never going to work because they made the problem too big and too difficult. So every time a climate scientist says you're all going to die in 10 years, people turn off because it's just too big a problem. They can't do anything. And that's you know, basic cognitive science. We, for example, ran programs in festivals to get people to take plastic waste seriously. And then they became campaign activists. So you, you need to change the dispositional state so people will accept what the scientists are saying. Now, COVID actually gives us a chance to do that. Yeah, it gives us a chance to rethink the way our response to climate science. Yeah? But all of that, you have to do top-down direction when the bottom is ready to shift. And this is what really worries me about some of the behavioral scientists, is they're yanking, not nudging. They're deciding how to manipulate people. What we do is we map where people are and we allow them to nudge themselves. So one of the things we did in Wales, for example, is young people came together with people from their grandparents' generation to generate ideas for local change. And that was really successful. Yeah, idealism of youth, wisdom of old, throw them together, get things going locally. Dave, we've almost run out of time. You've covered some uh, amazing ground. I, I would love to ask you more questions. What's the one question I haven't asked you that I should have asked you that we can finish with? <laughs> I think actually the real, one of the real dilemmas here is how do you contrast personal survival with society's needs? And a good friend of mine who I used to work with in the 70s, Terry Eagleton, has written a really good book on sacrifice in the modern age. Hmm. And I think there's some old theological concepts we need to go back through, you know, the theology of hope, the theology of sacrifice. Those are things that make us think about society as a series of interactions rather than a series of isolated individuals. And that's where we need to go. Thanks again to Dave for sharing his time and insights. I was really struck by his comments about how novel adaptations of existing capabilities lead to innovation, especially in a crisis. And for me, that's what liminal spaces, places and communities are all about, to make sense of and innovate in our increasingly connected world. As he said, this really is our chance to get things right and we have to take it. There are a few links in the notes to go with this episode if you want to find out more about Dave and some of the things we talked about. I really do hope you found this episode interesting, inspiring, and useful, and we'll return again very soon with our next episode. Before we go, please can I ask that you rate, comment, and subscribe to this podcast, and also share this episode with others who you think might like it as well, using the hashtag OnTheEdge. This will encourage us to keep on making new connections, and to find more interesting people to talk to, and to share those conversations with you. This podcast was brought to you by Liminal, a collective intelligence community to address complex and collaborative challenges of our connected world. You can find out more about us at weareliminal.co. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, please keep on connecting people and ideas. If you do, you never know what might happen. Thank you and goodbye.